Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in the Press Row. It's Jonas Siegel here, and uh, we have one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, for those of you who used to listen to Bob McCowan on the Fan 590 with Primetime Sports, Bob used to host a, uh, a show almost every Friday, probably every Friday, called The Roundtable. And on The Roundtable, Bob used to bring in a ton of his usual favorite guests. Uh, it was the one time of the week where it wasn't necessarily filled with whoever the newsmakers of the day were, but it was people who had strong opinions. Uh, people used to think, it, they used to call it FOB, Friends of Bob. But it really was, uh, in my opinion, one of the best regular features of a, of a sports radio show um, when he brought the round table. And I think one of his best guests who used to come on all the time was his attorney, Gord Kirk. And uh, Gord is kind enough to join us today. How are you, Gord? I'm doing very well, Jonah. So uh, for those who don't know, you are uh, born and raised in Toronto, is that correct? That is correct, yes. So Toronto boy, up to no good, end up in law school, and somehow end up doing this crazy thing called sports law, whatever that is. How does that happen? <laughs> Just blind luck. I was uh, with a Toronto law firm, uh, then known as uh, Goodman & Goodman, now now known as Goodman's, although I'm not with them any longer. But uh, it was it was a very good law firm, very general law firm, uh, not particularly known for its uh, uh, sports, although quite well known for its entertainment uh, portion of the firm. And um, anyhow, as a young lawyer, a senior partner came to me one day and said, uh, "Do you do uh, do you do sports law?" And I had learned not to say no to almost anything. And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I've done some related work. I, I know about that. Figuring that when the time came and if the time came, I would be able to look up what I need to look up. So they, they asked me to look after a very good uh, Canadian golfer named George Knudsen. And um, uh, I didn't know anything about golf. If you've seen my game, you'll, you'll know I know nothing about golf. But, um, but uh, so I started acting for George and uh, was able to garner whatever information I needed. And that started it off. And uh, it, it's interesting, like a lot of things in life, um, other, other athletes, other events, other teams, et cetera, followed. So uh, it wasn't too long after that that uh, a client of the firm, uh, Labatt, decided that uh, beer and and, uh, and baseball go very well together. So maybe they should uh, get a baseball team. Uh, so the senior partner responsible for that client, uh, Herb Solway, still a terrific lawyer, a terrific guy, came to me as a young lawyer and said, would you like to get involved in baseball? I love baseball and absolutely loved it and, and thought, what a great opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. 
So again, I didn't say no. And before long, I was pursuing a baseball team for Toronto, uh, starting with uh, the Baltimore Orioles, trying to buy the Baltimore Orioles. That failed. And uh, then um, tried to buy the San Francisco Giants. That failed. Tried to then um, get an expansion team in the National League of Baseball. Uh, figuring uh, it would be good to be uh, pitted up against the local rival is the Montreal Expos, and uh, and that failed. We were denied um, an expansion franchise in the National League. So I went to Labatt and said, uh, uh, I'm not doing so well so far. I went to my senior partner. I said, not doing so well. Uh, maybe you should get somebody else. And uh, they said, no, no, I mean, you, you've gotten a bit of a reputation in the baseball world, and we've had some positive feedback. Uh, let's keep trying. So we tried to get a an American League uh, franchise, and lo and behold, it was successful. So Toronto now had a uh, franchise, an expansion franchise uh, and in Toronto, and it came in the same year that Seattle got an expansion franchise. So it was balanced, the two teams coming in. So uh, that just left us to uh, get players, which was done through an expansion draft, and to come up with a name for the team. And uh, Labatt being the marketing uh, experts they are, um, had a name the team competition where ballots were put in cases of beer where you could suggest uh, <laughs> you could suge- you could suggest a name for the team and uh, we got some outrageous suggestions i mean uh given the topography of toronto and and uh, the um you know especially where the ballpark was going to be uh Toronto Island Ferries was one of the <laughs> first first suggestions for the for the team and and um and we got some uh uh some great suggestions and uh, and finally it was um we we had one that was uh uh con- controversial uh the late John Robarts who had been premier of the province and was on the name the uh team committee uh, said that there's an animal that's truly symbolic of of uh, Canada, and since a lot of baseball teams are named after birds or or animals of one sort or another, Toronto Beavers would be appropriate. <laughs> so there there was a young there was a young man in the meeting with me named Peter Bavese, uh, and Peter and I were the two youngest guys at the meeting and uh, uh, I, when this name was suggested I said to Peter um, you better explain something to them because that, that <laughs> might come out to be the name of the team and there would be a lot of explaining to do and Peter said no you're the lawyer you explain it <laughs> and I, <laughs> I said there, there was no course in law school that would help me explain it so anyhow <laughs> Peter talked anecdotally to the group and they finally realized it wasn't a proper name. Uh, and uh, the next suggestion from John Robarts was uh, 
Blue Jays. Uh, John Robarts uh, talked about how he would be in the washroom in the morning, open the window, and there'd be a family of Blue Jays uh, in the trees, and uh, and it would be um, terrific to have a team named Blue Jays, beautiful colors, great, aggressive, chatty persona, and uh, that was the name. Wow. So you do baseball for a while, and I think yes. – I think like the common uh, Canadian sports fan, there's a couple of names that, that, that resonate that when they hear it, you come to mind. So tell me if I'm missing anybody, but uh, Rick Nash would be one. Right. Uh, Eric Lindros would be another. Yes. You Google Gord Kirk and the name Brett the Hitman Hart comes up. Yes. And then, and then you, then there's a foray into sports media. So one, Robert McCowan, uh, who we've talked about briefly. Um, one, Michael Landsberg. Uh, one, Nick Kiprios. Um, and, a, and a bevy of others, including Donald S. Cherry. All those, all those names somehow find their way to you. Um, so at one point you were an agent. Were you were you Lindros's and Nash's hockey agents, or were you? Yes, really I was. In, in those days, we had started a uh, hockey uh, agency uh, called KSR Sports, and um, and we had you know a decent stable of uh, quality hockey players, and um, and uh, those names that you mentioned were. Uh, people we represented, and we were very fortunate. They were, they were uh, good, good players. Obviously, in fact, in a couple of cases, great players. And of course, Eric Lindros is in the Hall of Fame, and uh, and good people. They were very good people to work with. Um, we decided initially not to expand the agency beyond um, beyond hockey. And restricted to hockey, I felt I could not um, obviously represent baseball players, given the fact that I had uh, done the work for Labatt in, in uh, helping to get them the franchise and had since uh, worked for uh, for the Blue Jays with their legal matters and, in fact, worked for them for about 30 years doing baseball law. So how do you get from Lindros and uh, Nash, arguably two of the biggest names in, in hockey in that era, to Brett the Hitman Hart? Well, it was interesting. Uh, Brett, Brett's um, representative uh, was a fellow by the name of Carl Lindros. Or I'm sorry, that's Carl Lindros, the father that's of Eric's dad. Yeah, it was Carl DeMarco. <laughs> Okay. Carl DeMarco was the um, was a friend of Brett's and and did a lot of work for him. And it, Carl came to me and said that he would um, uh, like to refer Brett to me for for legal work. And I said, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm fortunately very busy right now. And uh, and while. 
I, you know, I get a kick out of wrestling. I, you know, I really don't know much about it and uh, don't know whether I could do a very good job. And Carl told me a lot about Brett and, and it interested me. He's a, he's a great political cartoonist and, uh, and really amused the guys in the dressing room, Andre the Giant and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, by doing cartoons and posting them on the, on the wall in the dressing room. It's a, and, and, and terrific sense of humor. So once I found that to be the case, I was anxious to meet Brett. Uh, he caused quite a sensation in the um, reception area of, of my <laughs> law firm when he came in because more people recognized him than I thought was possible. Was, and he, wearing, was he wearing pink spandex? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, just jeans and a shirt, you know, a good, good Calgary boy. And, uh, and, uh, so I met him and to know him is to love him. He is, uh, I guess, unless you're wrestling against him. And, uh, so I really took to him and we're friends to this day. I saw him just very recently and, uh, long time, uh, friendship. So it's interesting, you know, you work in a business where, you know, the deepest, darkest secrets of some pretty important people. So in the next half hour, I'd like you to bear all of those. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but, but it's true. Um, you do. And a lot of, not all, but a lot of the people that you represent um, have, a, have, a real, have a public persona that's very different than the actual person that appears in front of the public, either in front of a microphone or out in public. Um, you know, McCowan is certainly one and, and he has been very public about the, the notion that he got his, um, notoriety, if you will, by creating this persona of a jerk. Um, lots of people will say that's not a persona, but he certainly says that it is. Um, it became less so in later years, but you know, he had this different persona. There's a lot of people who say um, to meet Don Cherry is not the same Don Cherry who appears on Coach's Corner. Um, is that something that you think when you meet them and you work with them, how quickly does the real person come out versus uh, the person they appear to be? Uh, do you mean uh, with me? Yes, exactly. Yes, um, I, I think quite quickly. I mean, uh, I, I should make one thing clear. I did, did not represent Don Cherry. I've been involved in meetings with Don Cherry for various reasons, but I was not his representative. Um, I wished I was, but I wasn't. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we, we've had meetings, et cetera. I, I, I think most of the people that you're talking about have a public persona, which may be, as, as you say, that of a jerk, although I think they would argue back that it's, uh, it's, it's controversial or it's interesting, but, but not jerk-like. Well, so to be clear, I, that's, that's the idea that, that you get when you, when you read articles or interviews with McCowan. 
where he talks about, you know, hanging up on people and being, I, I actually think he uses the word a jerk, but if I'm wrong, that's not the intent, you know, uh, let's go with gruff. How about that? <laughs> gruff is good. Gruff so, is good. So you, so how do you meet McCowan? Um, I, it's been so long that, um, I, I, I guess it was because he had heard my name or read my name in connection with my having represented the Blue Jays or my having represented the Toronto Maple Leafs or whatever. And, and, uh, thought, well, maybe we should get this guy on the show. So I, I think our first in-person meeting was, uh, on the set of the show primetime sports. And, um, and then we got to know each other and he did something that he rarely does. He suggested that we get together um, apart from the show and, and have lunch or dinner or whatever. And uh, we became extremely good friends. So I, I found an old article about you and there's a, there's a couple quotes from Mr. McCowan about you um, says, Gord has tremendous respect in the sports sports community because he's perceived as an effectively good is a good person, says McCowan, the outspoken radio and television broadcast, one of Kirk's clients. There's no dark side to Gord. I don't know any other attorney who doesn't have a dark side, who isn't motivated by other things. Gord seems not to be. So he clearly likes you. Um, so to the extent you can, um, what's McCowan like when he's not in front of the microphone? He's a, he's a terrific family guy. I don't want to, uh, to the, to the extent that, um, his being quotes a jerk or, or gruff, I think you said gruff, um, contributed to his success as a broadcaster. I don't want to take way too much from that, but I will tell the truth. He's a terrific family guy. He makes a, a wonderful friend. He has a fairly limited group of friends. He's he's shyer than you might imagine when when you hear him on the radio, or in, in the past when you heard him on the radio. Um, but he is uh, he's a very warm and and generous friend. So you go to the studio for the the feature that I liked, the roundtable, and you're sitting in the roundtable. And whatever the topic du jour is, everyone says it's black and predictably McCowan is going to say it's white. Um, and, and does it better than anybody, by the way. Um, and things get heated as they typically do. That's what makes good radio. If everyone there is, is agreeing, then it's not very interesting or good radio. So he plays that role very well, better than anybody. You go into break, does it ever get awkward there where everyone's like going, how, how can you believe that? Or what are you thinking? Like, does any of those discussions ever happen or everyone just accepts it for what it is? No, I, it, it, it continues on. The, the, the temperature level does get high in the room um, when Bob is cutting uh, one of the guests up. Often it was me. And <laughs> when he would cut one up and, and, say why you're a fool or an idiot or whatever adjective he was using, of course your temperature is going to rise. And, and it doesn't just automatically turn off when you go to commercial break. 
uh, you're still feeling like you've been uh, cut with a knife and, and you, you, you want to at least argue back and find out if he's making his point for the sake of entertainment or whether he really holds that belief. So the discussions, um, it would be terrific if they had recorded the discussions during the break. They could, they could put on shows now of just the breaks from five time sports because it got heated and, and it, and, and people did not, hold back in the same way as when you're when you're on air and i i would imagine so much is inferred via body language or eye movement the fact that he's wearing sunglasses and i i suspect they didn't come off during breaks didn't exactly help matters no well that's that's absolutely right the sunglasses according to Bob's version of it um, occurred when he was doing a show, a show prior to primetime sports. It was a more the economic side of, of sports. And um, I forget the, the name business of it now. Of, I think but it's called the business of sport. Business of sports. Exactly. It's very obvious. I should have remembered that. But um, when he was doing that show, the cameras uh, the, and the lights in the studio really did affect his eyes considerably. And when they moved into the studios to do primetime sports, the lights seemed to be at a lower level on the wall and almost eye height. And so it, it quite bothered his eyes. But uh, that, that was the primary reason, <laughs> at, at least initially, for the sunglasses. I'm sure, as you say, too, it, it helped um, to hide his real mood and feelings when, when, uh, when, uh, when they corrected the lights. So, you've got, so you, you have this history of, of working with some interesting characters, who, who, or at least being in meetings with some interesting characters. Um, any fun stories about Don Cherry you can share? Yeah, Don Cherry is... is um, I think frequently misunderstood because he, he's a blustery. He's made his reputation being blustery and very opinionated, very strong in expressing his opinions, et cetera, as we all know. And, um, but I had one meeting in my office one time. There was a group of people around talking about a business venture. And, um, the, um, my assistant asked if, uh, anybody wanted uh, coffee and and the coffees were ordered except for Don who asked if it would, might be possible to to get a tea so my assistant brought Don a tea and she chose a teacup and put the tea in it and gave it to Don and we and and when she did that she detected uh, a a tear in Don's eye and um, and so I, I noticed she delayed for a moment uh, at the place where Don Cherry was. And I looked over and I thought Don looked emotional. So I didn't want, I didn't, didn't know Don well enough to either make fun or, or <laughs> create, create a havoc about it. So, so we just carried on. At the end of the meeting, the people left. And um, she said to me, I'm sorry, did I do something wrong? Did I, did I say something or not say something 
with Mr. Cherry and, and he, he got quite emotional. And I said, I, it puzzled me as well. I, I didn't know why he got emotional that you brought him the tea. I mean, I guess he was just grateful. And then I glanced down at the teacup she'd chosen uh, to use for Don Cherry. And there was a rose on the side of the uh, teacup. And of course, uh, Rose was the name of his late wife. And, uh, and he was a very loving guy, very loving husband. They had a great relationship. And he was moved by the fact that she would choose a teacup that had a rose on the side and, and thought she had done it uh, on purpose to, to honor his late wife. So it, it, uh, it moved him. Now that's not how we usually think of Don Cherry. So, so, um, and, and most people talk about when they meet Don Cherry in person and the lights aren't going and the cameras aren't rolling. Um, he's very gracious and very sweet and, uh, very welcoming. And when he comes to your office, is he dressed the same way he is on Hockey Night in Canada? <laughs> a little more conservatively, but uh, <laughs> but um, I he has also come. If he's on his way to the show, yes. Yeah. So let's talk about one thing briefly. So it's been a very interesting time, both um, on the media side and then on the just on the sports side itself, where numerous very public figures uh, like Mr. Cherry have been exited from their current or from their most current position. Um, so on the media side, we've got McCowan, Doug McLean, Nick Kiprios, um, and a whole whack of others. Um, Cherry on the, Don Cherry added to that uh, recently, very recently. Um, and then you can add to that um, this week in Toronto, where Toronto's, uh, the Toronto Maple Leaf head coach, Mike, Mike, uh, Mike Babcock gets, um, exited. So it's always public topic as to what their next gig is. You know, the body's not even cold yet and everyone's talking about where they're going next. And the most frequent question I get is, what do you hear about McCowan? Where is he going? Why isn't he on TSN yet? Can you very quickly and eloquently talk about some of these folks and what a non-compete clause would look like in their agreement. Um, so when hypothetically, if a coach, and I'm not asking specifically about Mike Babcock, but when a coach signs an agreement with his team uh, and it's for X number of years and X number of dollars, when that coach gets fired, that is contemplated in advance when he signs the contract, what happens in the world when he gets fired? Um, and let's talk about the coach first. So coach has a contract that says, we're gonna pay you X million dollars for X number of years. When he gets fired and there's term and money left, typically what happens from a legal perspective? Yeah, typically there the there's obviously a contract between uh, you wanted to tr start with a coach between the coach and the team, and, and obviously, and that that contract is more voluminous than you would suspect. It's it's got a lot of pages, <laughs> and and you know all the more work for the lawyers. It's a very good thing. Um, anyhow, the 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 if you look at the clauses in 
a usual. I don't know what I can use that expression with, with coaches and whatnot. No, it's typical. Uh, there, yeah, it's used typical. Uh, the the um, they will have a clause in there that if the contract is terminated by either side early, it hasn't run its full course. Uh, the term of the contract and and it, it's let's call it prematurely terminated by either party. There's usually a, a clause and and you said it right. It's a non-compete clause that says that for a period of X months or maybe even X years in some cases, the um, employee, the the coach, and now the ex-coach, is not to work for a competitor. In the case of the NHL, for example, with another NHL team. Now, um, some uh, coaches have negotiated their way out of that so that – if they're terminated, they're free to go where they want on the basis that they uh, need to uh, live and provide for their families, etc. cetera. Uh, some teams um, pay out when the contract is terminated or when it expires, there's a, a, bo- a bonus. But that bonus or that, that payout is often considered to be consideration for a clause in which they promise they're not going to compete for a period of time. So and hence the non-compete. So back to the coach, if a coach gets fired, so Babcock gets fired this week, he has three years and almost uh, $18 million left. That's, that's the rumor anyways. Um, Would you expect the Leafs to be on the hook irrespective of the fact that he got fired for the remaining balance, time and money? It is entirely possible. I, I'm fortunate in, in this regard that we can have this discussion because I, I do not know Mr. Babcock's contract. But it would be, it would be not unusual for um, the coach to uh, be paid out by the team for the length of the contract. And... Um, um, and in return for which the coach has signed a non-compete and w- has agreed to stay out of coaching, at least at that level, for the period for which he is being paid out. Okay, so in your expert opinion, and I know you don't know the specific contract, but you know the characters, right? Uh, the, Leafs yes. were, the Leafs were desperate to get him. They pried him out of Detroit and away from Buffalo and other places. And I'm not going to say they overpaid, but they paid him handsomely to do it. Your expectation would be, uh, under those circumstances, that the, the term would be guaranteed. No matter what, he was going to get his money. So I assume that's correct, yes? Uh, it, uh, that certainly would not be unusual in the case of a famous and renowned coach such as Babcock. Okay, so the term is guaranteed. So now he gets fired. So he's due the money. Is what I'm hearing from you that if he wants to coach again in the National Hockey League, he would have to relinquish some of that cash? Is that what, you, is that what you're suggesting? Uh, he would have to come to an agreement with the team if that clause is in his contract. He would have to negotiate something like he would take 
a reduced version of the payment that was due to him or forego that payment in exchange for a release to be, be able to go in and uh, coach another team. So if, say, the New Jersey Devils suddenly had an opening, they could go to the Leafs and say, or he could go to the Leafs and say, I'm going to relieve you of 50%. So instead of paying me $6 million a year, you only have to pay me three, and New Jersey is going to pick up the other three. That is something that could, a discussion that could happen, correct? It is, that's right. Now, and, there's, sorry, go ahead. And the Maple Leafs could say to him, pound salt, we're either paying you everything or we're paying you nothing. If you want to coach again, uh, whatever you make elsewhere is on your dime. We're not paying you a cent. Yes. Also plausible. Yes, in, the, in, the no, in normal circumstances. One complicating factor we should put into this, too, is, of course, the league uh, has um, a non-compete factor, too, in that you are not supposed to tamper. They call it, you know, the tampering rules, the anti-tampering rules, that a team is not to um, tamper and and try to sign a player or a coach or any personnel um, who is still under contract to the team. So if, if it were the case that a coach had a contract that ran past the date of his termination, that player is still under contract to the team and therefore no team is allowed under NHL rules to tamper. So to what, you're saying, go to that. what you're saying is if, if it were New Jersey in my hypothetical, New yep. Jersey can't approach Babcock. New Jersey would have to go to the Leafs and seek their permission to speak to Babcock. If there is that uh, clause in, in Babcock's contract. Gotcha. Okay. Fair enough. So no, I get, I'll give you now, I'm going to add to the hypothetical. As you know, okay. I'm, I'm based here in Seattle, and Seattle is getting a hockey franchise. What if, and again, you don't know the contract, but you know the players, and you're very smart, and you've got all the experience in the world. What if Seattle says to Mike Babcock, we want to hire you as an advisor? You're, you're free. We want to hire you as an advisor. Clearly, they don't need a coach right now. Could Seattle hire Mike, in your opinion, knowing what you know and what you don't know? Could Seattle, the Seattle hockey franchise, Ron Francis and company, and uh, the Lewickies, one of which who used to play a prominent role in Toronto sports, could they go to Mike Babcock and say, we want you to join the Seattle hockey franchise. Maybe one day you'll be the coach, wink, wink. But for right now, we, we would love your expertise in scouting and opinion. And as we build our franchise, we would like to hire you as a um, consultant, an advisor. Um, and I read this week that uh, there were some NHL meetings and that Ron Francis, the, the, the GM, could not attend because they haven't made their last payment and that's not due apparently till May. So in your opinion, knowing what you know, could Seattle hire Mike Babcock uh, independently as an advisor it's not a current NHL franchise. Could they hire him right away uh, and not be in the muck, if you will, that's muck with an M, um, of the Toronto Maple Leafs agreement? Um, unlikely. Most, uh, most of the uh, clauses, the non-compete clauses, certainly in the NHL, um, talk about uh, hiring 
a personality of uh, of, uh, an employee in any capacity. Okay. So, uh, for example, uh, I, I at one time was hired by the Toronto Maple Police to hire a general manager for the Maple Police. In front of me. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so um, I we were looking at several people, most of whom were employed in one capacity or another with other teams. So we had to uh, make sure that before we approached any of those people that we thought might be a good general manager, whether or not that person was a general manager or something else elsewhere, we would have to either approach the league and have the league approach the team or approach the team first and ask for permission to, to talk. And sometimes the team is anxious to do it because they will say to the player, we've had a request and, you know, so such and such team wants you and um, uh, we're prepared to let you out of the contract and let you out of the non-compete uh, if, if you forego the money we otherwise would pay you. So right. there are those kinds of negotiations that go on. In my case, for example, I was um, thinking about talking with uh, Lou Lamorello Interesting that he later came to the Leafs, but but uh, at the time I was looking for a general manager for uh, the Leafs. I, I looked at Lou Lam- Lamorello. I was very careful uh, not to conflict with his uh, responsibilities at New Jersey. And even when um, I wound up uh, negotiating with uh, with uh, Brian Berg. Um, we had to be careful. And in fact, I was called into Commissioner Bettman's office on the basis that um, I was I was tampering with Brian Burke, who was under contract elsewhere. And uh, I made the argument to Commissioner, uh, the, to the Commissioner, that um, I wasn't tampering with Burke, but in fact, Burke was tampering with me because he was making statements to the public, such as um, Toronto is to hockey what the Vatican is to Catholics. So, so you know, there, there were clear comments that he would like to come to Toronto. So I asked the commissioner in view of those kinds of comments, when does it stop being tampering? Anyhow, I was shown the door in very short <laughs> order, but, but but that was that was one example of where that tampering comes up, and you have to deal with it. All right, so let's let's switch gears a little bit, and let's talk about um, person media personalities. Yep. So, so a media personality has a contract for a term to do a show; they get terminated. What t- what is a typical for a star? Uh, what does a typical non compete look like for those guys? Those folks. Sorry. Usually, usually the it's it's not terribly different. They don't they don't have the non tampering rules uh, because it's not a league. It's so it's not a league with a with non tampering. But 
but usually it's contractual and um, it, it depends on whether the uh, personality, the TV or radio personality has completed the contract in which they are probably a free agent and free to deal or whether they're still being paid out. Um, in which case there's probably a, a non uh, competitor and uh, you know an, an inability to deal with another team or another uh, uh, broadcaster. So, so hypothetically, personality X works for either Rogers or TSN, and uh, they get terminated. They've been there forever. They have a five. They have a three-year contract. They get terminated. They have two years left. What would, and they're high paid, what would typically a non-complete clause look like in that situation? It would, it would most typically look like a, an agreement by the employee who is about to become an ex-employee uh, that for as long as he or she is being paid under the contract, they will not... Um, seek out or or agree to a contract with a competing broadcaster. Now, you get into things like what is a competing broadcaster? What if it's um, not sports, for example? What if it's TV rather than radio? What about the geographics of it? What if it's not in Toronto, it's in another jurisdiction? So there are all kinds of details that come into it but it's not terribly different from an athlete's contract right but so in in my example where you have a high paid talent uh working for a big network both of them don't want the other to do you know so if you have a if you have a big name and that name gets terminated um in contract negotiation obviously they don't want him or her to go to the competition uh, right. Similarly, you have a big name talent and they want him or her to sign their agreement. So in your opinion, and, and not just opinion, but based on what you know, uh, the higher the talent, the less likely or the more likely it is that there is some sort of non-compete? Uh, the more likely. They, um, they, they usually, um, uh, even with lesser talent, and I, I shouldn't say it that way, but lesser known talent, who come to a broadcaster, they'll, they'll try to get a very similar, if not identical clause on the basis that while they're not very well known now, this person could surprisingly or unsurprisingly become a superstar. So, so you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want to hire, if, if you're a broadcaster, you wouldn't want to hire a prospect, not a known entity, but a prospect, build that prospect up, spend the money um, promoting and advertising and pushing that prospect until that prospect is a star and then lose that prospect to somebody else. So they would usually have a similar clause. So once again, you're listening to leave in the press row with Jonah Siegel and uh, world famous, world renowned sports attorney, Gord Kirk. Um, so when the aforementioned folks were summarily dismissed over the last, you know, four or five months, it would be safe to say that the primary reason they're no, they're not on the air anymore is that it is likely 
that there is some sort of non-compete that is preventing them from doing so. That either they'd have to give up whatever they're getting or um, they're absolutely precluded from going on air until whatever the term is left on the non-compete. That's correct. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, that's, that's the way it is. And, uh, and um, for whatever reason, I think, I think the broadcasting area is generally cyclical. And we're in a cycle now, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, that um, that it is it is a low period in, in that um, broadcasters are uh, not as willing to dish out the, the, the big bucks they were willing to dish out. And um, and and so, you know, you've got a uh, you've got a personality who is probably collecting the remains of a lucrative contract. Um, and there may not be, there may, may not be out there uh, any, any sort of salary that's similar to what he or she was making. So a couple Saturdays ago, unless you were living either on Mars or under a rock, uh, Don Cherry went off on Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, just curious, your take on the whole thing. Um, obviously you, you view things differently given what you, what you do, but what, what was your take on the whole thing? My take was, it was an extremely unfortunate comment by Don. And I do not believe, uh, based on my limited exposure to, to Don and from what I've heard from people who have had much more contact with Don, that he, he is not racist, that he is not uh, one who would um, make a knowingly racist comment um, because he doesn't believe in it. And, and I think the gist of what he wanted to say and what he unfortunately did not say was that all Canadians should wear a poppy to honor the war heroes instead of saying you people, right? Uh, you people, uh, seems to imply a certain group of people, maybe it'd be by race or, or recent Im immigrant status in Canada or whatever. And that's very unfortunate, particularly in the day, uh, the day that we live in, uh, when so many people have to face discrimination and racism and whatnot. Um, Don's timing was terrible. So, and, and what he said was unfortunate. So, again, you don't know Don's contract, but you know big stars' contracts, media personalities. They typically have some type of, call it ethics or non-disparagement or non-embarrassment clause that when they go on air or out on the street, they're not allowed to do something that would embarrass their employer. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Usually the clause is to the effect that if they do anything to bring the broadcaster into disrespect or, you know, contrary to the policies of the broadcaster, et cetera, that that the personality can be terminated and by the broadcaster. And often in that case, it is without um, termination pay, without compensation. Right. So, what we're talking about then is 
if someone were to be terminated, let's use the real word, fired, if they're fired, um, you can fire someone almost for any reason you want, as long as it's not for a bad reason. You can't do it because of protected reasons. But typically, when you fire someone, they get fired with what is called without cause. So they didn't necessarily do anything evil, whether they did or they didn't, but you're not gonna call it evil and therefore you are going to pay them a severance. So what you're talking about is the rare exception when does someone does something publicly awful that embarrasses them or may embarrass them, under which they would be fired for what is cause. Um, one, in your expert opinion, and I know that you don't know, uh, do you think Cherry would likely have had a non-disparagement type clause in his contract? I think because it is so standard, not, not because it's Don, uh, but it, it is so standard in the industry that I think he would have that kind of clause. So let's not talk about right now whether they did, but given the nature of his termination, is it possible that Rogers could have said to him, by doing what you did on TV, you've embarrassed us. Therefore, we're actually firing you with cause Ergo, you're not being paid a severance pay. I think it is possible. I hope it's not actual, but it's possible. And that's where a fight could ensue, right? That's where, yes. that's where the courts and lawyers would get involved. It's probably yes. more likely that they said, we're not, we could go that route, but we're not going to go that route. We'll pay you out um, if you sign a release of some form. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I would think that would be the more likely scenario. Okay. So, uh, interesting times. Absolutely. Now, just uh, before we go, you're doing really interesting work and in, in, uh, in the mediation space. And um, a lot of people, myself included, probably didn't realize that you're involved a lot more intricately in the day-to-day -day sports, almost in a in a hidden fashion. Uh, can you tell us without naming names, obviously, what, what you're doing in the sports world that might interest people? Well, I've been for some years doing mediation, not in sports. Um, in, in the general world, um, I have mediated uh, all kinds of disputes from contract uh, disputes to um, uh, motor vehicle accident disputes to uh, injuries to uh, sexual assault to any, you know any kind of thing where the parties may wind up in court. Um, I've been doing mediations to try to uh, help them avoid court and settle before they have to go to court. So that became known, I guess, because of my history in sports. Um, people became aware of what I was doing and the mediation. Somebody, and I wished I could give credit to somebody, but I, I don't know who it was. Somebody along the way said, my goodness, um, if uh, he, he is being used to um, help people avoid court, what about uh, helping people avoid a conflict, you know, contractual conflict where we can't agree on a salary for an athlete or we can't agree 
on the disciplinary actions, etc. So more and more, I've been getting involved in sports disputes where there would otherwise be an arbitration. Um, and maybe I should distinguish between an arbitration and a mediation. A mediation means that I act as a mediator and, and sort of a, a, trying to, a peacemaker, somebody who tries to a go-between. That's, that's, <laughs> that's pretty good. And, and try to resolve things so that there's no animosity, there's no hard feelings, there's no real disputes going forward, which you can imagine, for example, in a, in a salary situation in sports, there can be some very hard feelings between the parties, even if it's settled. You know, if, if, the, if the bullet's flying everywhere in a salary dispute, you know, this can be the team and the athlete can be not fond of each other at the end of that period of time. Um, so, whereas just, just, I think, just to finish the thought, so if they go to arbitration, it's binding, meaning? Yeah, so arbitration, they would go to an arbitrator who, who would be very much akin to a judge, not a judge, but to be acting like a judge. He would, he or she would hear the arguments of the parties and do a, give a, a judgment or a, a decision, an arbitration decision, which would be binding on the parties. The reason it's binding is because the parties agree in advance that they will be bound by whatever the arbitrator says. That's not what I do, although I, I have done some of that. But what I'm doing primarily now is non-binding. It is uh, just trying to help the parties facilitate resolution. Right. So let's let's bring up, and I don't know if you were involved. So last year when uh, William Nylander was a holdout, uh, didn't have a contract with the Maple Leafs, part of the challenge was he did not have arbitration rights. So... A lot of people think it would have simplified matters if he could have sat before an arbitrator um, and have the arbitrator figure it out, but he, he did not have those rights. Uh, his contract was not privy to arbitration yet. But what I'm hearing from you is it could have been a situation where either the Maple Leafs or Nylander's agent called you up and said, look, this thing is going off the cliff. Um, if we agree to it and the Leafs agree to it, would you try and help us mediate uh, a new contract? Is that the type of thing where you're involved? Yeah, that's, that's, that's very accurate. That's, that's what happens. I, um, because I've also done some arbitration, uh, the added advantage I have in telling the parties that I can't arbitrate here because there aren't arbitration rights available to you. But if I were arbitrating, here's what I would decide. Right. And that might give them some guidance. So are you doing that um, in pre-arbitration cases? Or are you doing it, like, for example, are you doing it only where they're about to go to arbitration? Or are you doing it more broadly where there is a potential dispute? Where there is a dispute, um, like in Nylander's case. I'm not asking specifically about him. But would 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 parties like Nylander and the Leafs come to you under those circumstances or were they only come to you where the next step is arbitration? No, it's, it's, uh, it's broader than that. It, it can be that, that, you know, we're having some difficulty. We're both acting in good faith, 
but we just can't seem to get this done. Let's see if we can get somebody to help us get it done. So in sports, are you doing that primarily in hockey or in other sports as well? Other sports as well. Oh, good. Is it fun? It is. It is. Um, yeah, certainly much more fun than the sexual uh, harassment <laughs> matters. <laughs> And I yeah. would imagine. No, it's fun. It's fun because it's sports, right? We're we're you're, you're a sports fan. I'm a sports fan, and it's it's fun to do something that matters in the sports world. And it's done under complete secrecy, so very few people know that it's actually going on. Exactly. That's one of the very important um, restrictions that we. There's a there's a contract that's signed, a contract between the two parties about the uh, mediation. And one of the most important aspects of that contract is the confidentiality. And I would imagine that the, the biggest upside is, um, unlike what you hear about sports arbitrations, uh, the player isn't, doesn't have his ego or her ego completely bruised or diminished by the team that actually wants to keep them. Yes, I think I, I, I've told you before uh, an anecdote involving the Blue Jays. Uh, where there was an arbitration involving a salary arbitration involving a great Blue Jay player from the past, Damaso Garcia, who was, um, this is many, many years ago, who was a very fine second baseman for the Toronto Blue Jays. But the Blue Jays and, and Damaso couldn't come to an agreement or were having difficulty coming to an agreement. Um, as to the, the ongoing salary for Domiso. So it was arbitrated. And the arbitrator came to a decision that was quite favorable to Domiso Garcia. And yet Domiso, following the decision, um, went into the clubhouse and burned his uniform. Now, now that, that, was, that was unfortunate uh, but it was because his ego was bruised by what was said by the Blue Jays in the ar in the arbitration, and uh, that's sort of avoided here. It's quiet. The two parties are usually separated in the mediation. I go back and forth, not unlike a dentist, but much less painful than a dentist to go back and forth between the two rooms, and um, and have discussions with the parties and. And, and I'm very aware of the fact that, that it's, it's better to avoid bruised egos. Well, that is fantastic. You know, the, the old adage of learning something new every day. I had no idea you were doing that. Uh, I certainly had no idea it was going on. And I think that's fascinating. Um, Gord, I, I really appreciate your time. This has been as awesome as I thought it was going to be. Uh, I miss hearing you on the radio, the odd Friday on, on the round tables. I miss all round tables and I'm hoping uh, the next time the proverbial, you know, what hits the fan in a, in a realm of sports or sports media that we can call on you again and, and do this again. Absolutely. Thanks, Jonah. It's really good speaking to you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.